episode 300. It is. Whoa. Wow. It is. So we got to re- so we got to replace the uh the theme song with like the soundtrack to 300, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally. Well, hi, everybody. This is uh, Carly Vina here for episode 300 of At Percussion. That's right. Big number. It's 300. Uh, with me, as usual, today, uh, Casey Cangelosi is here. Hey, happy 300. Happy, happy 300th uh, birthday, Carly. <laughs> and uh, special guest, Brian Nosny, uh, regular regular ringer, is here. Hey, Brian. Hello. Hi, everyone. How's happy 300. Going? Happy 300. Um, how how many hours have you slept in the last month? What do you think? Not 300. More like <laughs> maybe Three. 30 minutes at this point. So yeah, that sounds about right. For anybody that doesn't know, um, Brian has two two babies under one year. One actually under what? Under eight months. Seven, seven right months. Seven months apart. Yep. So um, so he's busy. He's busy. We're very glad that that you're here with us today. If you're listening on on release day, it's probably October 7th. And we have some interesting history today. There were some cool world premieres. There was a world premiere of a Henry Cowell symphony. Anybody know how many symphonies Henry Cowell wrote? Like over 20, right? It's over 20. Yeah, actually 21. I was surprised. So uh, in 1961 on release day and on, on October 7th, Henry Cowell's Symphony Number no. 15 um, titled Thesis was premiered by the Louisville Orchestra. Um, and I read that and thought like, I don't know any Henry Cowell symphonies. This is cool. So I listened to it. Um, and I'll, I'll just share with you a little bit of um, program notes from Henry Cowell. He writes, there is no extra musical program. The form is unusual. Five tiny movements, a choral-like introduction, an impassioned melody, a scherzo, a longer quiet melody, and a regular rhythm dance, which leads into a recapitulation of these elements in one movement. And at the end, a sonata form movement based on an extension of the primary motif, um, which is the mainstay of all movements. As the last movement is in sonata form, I decided to call it my 15th symphony. Um, so that's cool. If you feel inspired to check that out today, premiered, what would that be, 60 years ago today on, on release date. Um, the next cool um, world premiere of a piece was in 1983 on October 7th, and it was Arvo Peretz, If Bach Had Been a Beekeeper. Um, and sometimes it's also titled, I guess it's translated, If Bach Had Raised Bees. This is a piece for harpsichord, electric bass, guitar, tape, and ensemble, like a chamber ensemble. So this was premiered in Austria. And um, this is a cool piece to check out too. There's some nice recordings. In German, most of our listeners probably know, but for those that, that don't, the note B flat is named B, like we call it B, and B natural is written as H. So he spelled out in this piece, if Bach had been a beekeeper, um, spells out B-A-C-H with the pitches that the strings are playing. Um, and it kind of sounds like buzzing bees, which is kind of cool. So if you feel like listening to some um, strings sounding like bees, there it is. So that was 1983. And then um, third world premiere on October 7th happened in 2004. And this is James McMillan's A Scotch Bestiary for orchestra and organ. This was premiered by the LA Philharmonic, um, conducted by Esapeka Salonen. Um, Wayne Marshall was the organ soloist and it was part of the inauguration of the Walt Disney Concert Hall organ. So that's um, pretty cool. I'll share a little bit about this piece. It's like a, a pretty big percussion setup. Um, let's see, it's in two movements and it's following kind of in the tradition of 
like like Mazorsky's pictures at an exhibition. Macmillan writes, since the first performance takes place in the new Walt Disney Concert Hall in LA, I was motivated by the great American cartoon makers who represented human characters in animal form. A Scotch bestiary is inspired by human archetypes and personalities encountered in Scottish life over the years. So as I mentioned, tons of percussion instruments in this one. There's crotales, marimba, there's a whip, a lion's roar, two specifically noisy typewriters, um, tubular bells. Let's see, I'll skip over. I won't give you the complete list, but break drums, temple blocks, wood blocks, tune gongs, um, and then a whole bunch of other stuff. And Herdenglocken, which I guess are like the, the Almglocken that um, he writes is, as used in Strauss's Alpine Symphony um, and Mahler's Sixth Symphony. So anyway, it's kind of like just a big, big, crazy, big, crazy thing. Um, and I'll read a little bit of the, the review from the Los Angeles Daily News. Um, they write, the piece was certainly fun, riotous, at times cacophonous, wittily orchestrated and cleverly structured. It also brilliantly integrated the organ into the orchestra proper. Reptiles and fish were conjured on organ pedals and tuba with percussion and other brasses lending texture. Buzzing from the organ effectively suggested a queen bee and a snare drum gave the howler monkey his martial personality. All of these things and more merged into the work's second half, a crazy but exciting amalgam. So sounds super fun and interesting. There's recordings of this on, on YouTube too, if you feel so inspired. So that's our news for uh, October 7th. Seems like a good day for world premieres. That uh, percussion setup you described sounds like one of your heroes. Uh sounds like a small setup for her on Broadway. Except she doesn't have the entire stage. She has, you know, about like a four by oh, four right. room probably. <laughs> That's right. She has to put it into the, like a, a space smaller than my, my desk here. Yes. Yeah, yeah. the Balrons hanging from the ceiling with the Herd and Glocken. Uh, yeah. yeah. That was an A plus, <laughs> a plus segue, by the way. Hey, yeah, that was, that was great. Yeah. Um, well, I'm with, with that, I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, Chihiro Shibayama, um, and she is known for her work on Broadway. She was a percussionist for a su successful run of Miss Saigon on Broadway um, in 2017 and 2018. She's performed, um, seems like kind of everywhere in New York City. She's performed for the renowned Radio City Christmas Spectacular, NBC's Good Morning America with John Legend and Common, um, Daytime Emmy Award, the Metropolitan Opera, Kansas City Symphony, um, and several popular Broadway musicals, including The Addams Family, Anything Goes, and Cinderella. Um, and I think I saw on your website you were on, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name of the TV show. I shouldn't go off script. What's the TV show? Mozart in the Jungle. Yes. That's yeah, right. that's so cool. I, I watched that many years ago, and I, I don't think I knew of you or who you are. I'm going to have to rewatch it now and check you out there. Yeah, I'll give you a hint. I'm only in um, season one and two. And in season one, I'm in a parking lot playing a triangle. So <laughs> I encourage you to go find me now. <laughs> that, that, that should be easy. I mean, unless there's like a lot of people playing a triangle yeah. in a parking lot, right? Yeah, it's just, you know, a tiny part. But um, cool. yeah, it was a 1812 overture, but there was no triangle part actually. Um, but there was no other instrument on site and I feel still guilty to Tchaikovsky to this day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was like a TV thing. I had to be doing something and um, yeah, protagonists decided to take the symbols and play to help. Oh um, yeah. 
but she's an oboist, so I wasn't expecting that that would happen to our section, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, a little bit of a inside story there, but it's a great <laughs> scene. Cool. Well, now it's a scavenger hunt for any listener. <laughs> Go the back. Where's Waldo version of at percussion. <laughs> well, I didn't finish your bio yet. Um, Chihiro is an advocate for new music and performed as one of three onstage percussion soloists in both the U.S. and Canadian premieres of Ten Dunes opera T, A Mirror of Soul. And she's performed and recorded with new music ensembles, including Alarm Will Sound and American Contemporary Music Ensemble, among many others. Um, she serves on the percussion faculty of the Diller Quayle School of Music and also has served on the faculty of the Juilliard Summer Percussion Seminar. She's got a bunch of cool educational um, videos and resources on her website. Chihiro, it's so great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so honored to be the 300th guest. That's such a great number. I feel like I'm a lucky number person. So yeah. thank you. There it is, 300. Yeah. Um, well, I, I thought we'd start with um, talking about this article that you have on the Miller Machine website. Uh, it's also linked on your website about your path as a musician and how it led you to plan on Broadway and having all these great opportunities that you've had. So would you tell us a little bit about your path? Yeah, um, so I'll just start from basically graduating from Juilliard where I went for my undergrad and masters uh, because my I feel like my whole musical journey started when I moved to the US but that's just cut to the working part because uh, I'm sure everybody goes through this when you're about to graduate from school you have this fear of like oh no what do I do now I will end up with this degree that's supposed to be helpful to get a job but then we all know that music jobs are sort of hard to get. You know, it's not like you eventually land a job. There are many paths to land some sort of salary or job, but I didn't really have a good idea. And so, of course, I was a little worried. So I graduate and I do my best to freelance and get by. You know, I took every gig um, and I even taught and I've done cash jobs, you know, whatever I had to do to get by and survive in New York, I did. So I was doing that. And then there was this opportunity to audition for Radio City Christmas Spectacular. And I didn't even know that that's a really rare thing to be able to audition for something like the showbiz style. So, but I took it and I was lucky enough to win that in 2010. So that was um, the first sort of a job that gave me a salary that was a union rate job where I made, I felt like I made real income. Um, and not only that, it was the first time I played like showbiz stuff. I, at this point, I had never played in musicals, not even in high school, I didn't do that. I was just really focused on classical, cl contemporary classical repertoire. So I've never, played on this showbiz music. So then it was really fun for me. You know, it's like 90 minutes of Christmas music on steroid, right? Like what not to love about that. So, you know, I was excited because it was a great job and it was a great gig. It was fun music and everything was amazing. So then um, through that, I made new friends, new connections, and they all happened to be in the Broadway scene. and 
surprisingly, you know, I didn't really make that connection. It's like, oh, Radio City Christmas Spectacular Show is played by all the Broadway musicians. Uh, so that, I found out that was the case. And um, because of that, right about then, I was starting to really be interested in playing on Broadway because I didn't know how much I loved that style of music until I played the Radio City show. And then, you know, a lot of my upperclassmen friends or recent graduates of Juilliard, they already were subbing on Broadway. And so I kind of knew that job is out there, but I had no idea how to get them or anything. So I'll ask my new friends at Radio City, it's like, hey, how did you get into this scene? What can I do? You know, how can I play on Broadway someday? And basically all of them said, well, you have to meet them. Why don't you give them a call and then ask if you can go sit in the pit and watch them play? So then they'll basically give me their phone number or email. It was mostly phone numbers because I guess it wasn't cool to text back then. So, or email wasn't really a thing to do, I guess. Uh, so, but I just got a bunch of phone numbers with who introduced me to the phone numbers. And then, so I basically had to buckle myself and then start cold calling. And I've never done that before. So, um, you know, I would just started calling people and I will say something like, hi, my name is Chihiro. I just played at Radio City. I got your number from so-and-so. Um, he or she recommended that I give you a call and I would love to meet you and come see your show if you have a moment. Thank you very much. Um, and then I would leave my number and I had a script and everything because, you know, I hate to mess it up and I'm sure I messed up enough things um, <laughs> because no one picks up, right? I'm, I'm like, no one has my number. So, so I did that. And then um, to my surprise, really, like everybody called me back eventually. And it was really nice of them. I'm sure they're all busy, uh, but eventually I got to meet all of them and I went to see their show. So I'll, you know, wear a dress and then I'll meet them at the backstage door and I'll get to go into the pit and I'll just sit in the pit with the percussionist, sometimes a separate room, sometimes in the pit, and I'll follow the music or I'll just quietly watch. And then, so I did that. And that's, uh, that's why it led me to sub on Adam's family. Because one of the percussionists I met, Billy Miller, was kind enough to call me like a while after that. So I wasn't even expecting something to come of that, but he was kind enough to remember me and uh, offer me five shows. Because uh, I wrote an article that, so the show was closing, so he thought of giving me opportunities to just to play on Broadway. So he was like, hey, do you want to learn this show? I can give you five shows. And of course I said yes, and then I got to work. That's awesome. How, how did um, how did Billy gain, I guess, uh, you, the, the confidence like in you? Because you just watched, right? Like you didn't actually, did, did you have lessons with him or did you show him your playing or how was he, have, how did he have the confidence to say like, hey, come sub for me for five shows? You know, that's a very good question. I did not play a single note for him. Um, hmm. But maybe, I can't remember if I had websites or any videos of me out in the world. I don't know. 
Um, maybe he just trusted me that because I went to Juilliard, or maybe he knew mutual friends. Because I, I can't remember who introduced me to Billy.、Um, mm-hmm. But maybe the, the fact that I did Radio City just now, and the fact that I did go to Juilliard, and、mm-hmm. we had mutual friends, I think he just figured if I tried, I could do it, maybe. Sure. Well, probably I, also the you know the person that said, Hey, contact this person and tell them that I told you to reach out to them. Like that goes a really yeah,、sure. long way because musicians are always so careful about that. Yeah,、mm-hmm. sure, sure, sure. Yeah, they wouldn't recommend unless they knew you could,、uh, yeah, you could hang. That's、right. cool. Is that common for, for the, the current percussionist to be able to basically hire their sub? I would always think that it would be like the music director that would go through, but is it common for him to just be like, hey, I can't, I can't do this gig. Casey, can you take this gig? And then Casey just shows up one day and he's playing the. Is that the way it kind of works there? Yeah, so、um, it's both. There are times that music director or even contractor tells the regular, like, hey, I got this person. I would like you to put on your sub list. That could happen. But mostly, I think default is that regular. So when I was doing Miss Saigon, I got to ask my trusting colleagues and friends. It's like, hey, would you like to be my sub? Would you like to learn? And on top of that, there will be a lot of people who will be asking me if they could sub for me. And then I will obviously try to reply, and I do reply to everybody who comes to me with that request. But at that point, I already had chosen my trusting subs. So it's rare that I could give someone I totally don't know they're playing that opportunity. But I had said yes to everyone who came,、uh, who asked me if they could watch me play in the show, like I have done. So I try to be、um, open to that, as, at least. You know, maybe I could give them the work, but I could show them the, the backstage and everything. It's a lot more rigorous than our sub process for the podcast. The sub process is just like, <laughs> hey, I see Brian. Brian's online. Dude, Brian, just please, we need, we need help this episode. Come on in. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chihiro, you mentioned、um, like trusting the sub and. I always think I've subbed with,、um, for a while, I was the, the second call percussionist with Florida Grand Opera. And so if there was something that was timpani plus one percussion and that person needed a sub, it was me. And it, like, I've never been more nervous for a performance、um, than, you know, like you have not played a rehearsal, you've not played the show, you don't know what the conductor's doing. Hopefully, you have lots of cues written in and things, and, you know, you've, you've watched it, but it's like, I've never played this note before.、Um, what, what advice do you have for how to prepare to, to sub on a production like that? Like, what, it, it's just, it can be so scary, I think. Oh, yeah, it's still the most scariest thing I've ever done, no doubt.、Um, but I think you do have material to practice when you're subbing. When you have a regular show coming into you, if it's brand new, it's often that you might get a music put on your stand like a few minutes before, and that's scary for percussionists, as you can all imagine.、Uh, but being a regular is, I think, much easier because. Either way, because you get to rehearse, you get to play like million previews, and then hopefully you play 100 times on real shows. And by the time you're subbing out, you, your muscles should know it. And so it's really easy to go back in. However, if you're a sub, you have zero actual rehearsal 
excuse me, rehearsal time with uh, the real group. But um, these days, regular would give you PDF music, recording of the show, probably the percussion mix so you could hear the percussion. And that should include click tracks if that's necessary. And then these days, you would also get a conducting video DVD. So then, like, you know, Carly, you're saying, you shouldn't have to guess what conductor is doing in a weird slowdown moment or like a weird quick rhythm change or tempo change. So really the sub's job is to super over prepare on your own. And that will include um, you practice hard tunes or chart, right? Maybe one part has really busy percussion or crazy xylophone thing that you should just practice like you're preparing for an audition. And then, um, so you do that parts of that because musicals is long. So you would have, you know, 24, 26 to maybe 30 something tunes, including overture and bow music and exit music. So it's a long thing, like learning an opera. So you do your homework at home or your practice space. And then uh, most of the time, the theater or, or percussionist would let you go into the theater to practice when you're ready when you're at that stage where you're comfortable playing little bits of the show but what you really need to work on is the choreography as a percussionist broadway show is very much like learning a solo multi-piece or very hard percussion ensemble piece so you gotta know how to move to one place from the other um i have a video on miss saigon on YouTube where I wore um, GoPro on my head and that was the hardest piece on, in the musical. And you could see how I'm like running and then I'm playing timpani and then tuning and then turning pages at the same time. And then, you know, stuff like that is very hard to practice at home. So then as a sub, you wanna do everything you can to get into the setup. And it's cool because the percussionist, regular percussionist just leaves everything in there even sticks and mallets so you can use everything that's in there um, you just have to be mindful of what the theater rules are like uh, sometimes the actors decide to rehearse when you're going to practice then you can't blink any nose uh, one time i was learning cinderella um, they didn't turn on lights off hours so i had to bring a headlamp and then the regular was nice enough to put on like a lamp, you know, where I could use a one outlet that worked during off hours. And so I'll basically practice in the dark, <laughs> but you know, you gotta do what you gotta do to be prepared. And uh, there was one time, you know, I was asked to stop because um, a regular musician was napping between shows and I was like, oh, um, I'm so sorry. Uh, can I just airplay here, you know? So, but I was able to practice with uh, listening to the, show in my headphones and then just even walking through the movement of okay switch mallets here turn page here go over to timpani play like one button note and then come back and stuff like that is all a necessary important part of preparing for subbing for broadway shows and um so that's the prepare preparation part and then once you're ready you have a first show date that you talk to talk and decide with the regular Sometimes there's no room for negotiation. Sometimes there is. So I'd say if you're not ready, if you need one more week, 
be honest and tell the regular because it's so much better than jumping in and not doing well than waiting a week because chances are there are other subs and then the regular might just be able to be flexible because they want you to do well you know the important thing is that no one's there to get you um which could feel like that in the, such high pressure moment but they want you to all do well and so yeah once you're ready, you walk into your first show, like you're the regular, and then your goal is so that no one notices that that wasn't a regular, really. Um, you want to sound like the regular, so you wanna go see the show multiple times before you um, play your first show. I usually practice three weeks, and between that, I might go see the regular like four or five times. So as in, I sit in the show again and again to take notes. Okay, so this glocken part he or she's using, this mallet over here, and then, oh, I see, like, that conga groove here has this kind of emphasis or feel to it or whatever you can catch that is not written in the notation that you want to make notes of, you should do that. Um, yeah, and then... Um, once you play your first show, you'll be notified if you are approved. Uh, if you did well enough, then you're allowed to come back for another one. And then eventually you may get a status called designation, designated sub. So that means you're basically treated the same as your regular. Because um, there are different roles, like in one section, say in rhythm section, uh, you have to have at least, say, two designated all regular players. So between piano, drums, and bass, right? So that's a rhythm section. Two of them have to be designated all regular player. So that's why it's uh, useful to be designated because then you can play more. When there are, say, two subs and then there's only one chair open, then that person has to be designated then sometimes if you're not resignated, then you might not get called, right? So there's this whole thing about becoming a sub and the art of it. Some people do seven shows or something at once. They sub on different shows, which is crazy to me because I've only subbed on one show at a time. Um, but I think percussion subbing is one of the hardest things, I think. Um, I'm not saying, you know, other chairs aren't easy, but because percussion has so many instruments and the choreography is involved, it's just, just a lot to do. So, but it's yeah. very fun. That's what I was thinking about just the setup because like you and I could play the same show and independently come up with a completely different setup or, you know, like just, so that's what I was wondering. I, I, I'm, I'm glad to know you're able to get in the hall, even if sometimes it's like, oh, somebody's sleeping or there's no lights. Like it, that is just critical to be able to play on that person's setup and with their mallets and, and make it happen. You, um, you know, speaking of other chairs, and I'm glad you mentioned this is like a virtuoso multi-percussion solo. And I urge everyone listening, like check out her great Miss Saigon GoPro cam. Um, it's it's really yeah, it's, it's really explains well. I mean, if this isn't like walking in and subbing triangle on 
a symphony. I mean, this is like, no, you are learning like a virtuosic, very, very busy, jam-packed, lots of instruments, uh, percussion part. Is there ever a discussion about like doubling? Like I know this would be all sorts of doubles on a regular, like how did, how did percussionists end up this way? How is it okay? Like, oh yeah, violin, you just get to play violin, but percussion, you got to play every, everything. Like how did we get to that, that point? It seems unfair to me. <laughs> Oh, uh, thanks for asking that. Well, it's actually very fair because I made more money than, say, a violinist who just played the violin. Uh, because in union work, uh, doubling is compensated. And in case of percussion, well, I counted, I played 32 instruments in Miss Saigon. So I do not get double for every single one. That is just a little unfair, right? But we do it by category. So there's timpanis one, mallets is one, like regular other whatever percussions one and if you play hand drums that's like ethnic that's one and and then another thing called electronics and i had all of that um although so i had basically three doubles with electronics um because i used mallet cat for mm -hmm. some of the i used mallet cat for vibes and other things like gamelan sound we, which we didn't have for miss saigon so then Yes, I, I got, and then each double is added, you know, by percentage. So yeah, it is fairly compensated, although it's still a lot of work. So at least there is that. That's cool. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. I'm just curious, where does all this gear come from? Like is the, is the, okay, you, you've been hired for a brand new run of a show. You're going to be the primary percussionist is the theater providing this through a rental company is the is the show itself providing it are you expected i can't ex imagine that you're expected to provide all of this stuff i'm just just curious yeah so it depends on the show but um in my case it was all of the above some came from the show uh because it's a big company who produced like la Mis, miss saigon like 10 years ago and so my partner, percussionist, drummer, and I had to drive a few hours up north to visit their warehouse and pick instruments, basically. So they were like, okay, tell us which one you want in the theater. And so we discover all this old gongs that was used, you know, 10 years ago when Miss Saigon originally was on Broadway. And we're like, okay, this, this, this. And then, uh, so there's that part came from warehouse. And then there's another part that came from rental company. So like a long-term rental. And then um, I provided just very little things. Like um, I went to Japan to pick up this uh, Hyoshigi, which is like a club, basically, used in like Kabuki theater. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to be in Tokyo. Let me pick those up to use for Miss Saigon. So yeah, they came from three different places. And some shows, the shows want to buy everything as an investment. Some shows it's small or short run that maybe if it's just drums, drummers usually bring their drums. I think drummers usually bring their drums. Okay. Just because they want to. Sure. But percussion, I think it's mixed. And then how much in rehearsals are there, you know, is the music director saying, oh yeah, I don't, I don't like that symbol. Do we have another symbol? Do we have another gong? Can you use a brighter mallet? Is that common or is it just like, listen, we trust you, just do what you do? I think it could happen, just like uh, anything. In my case, once we were in the theater, uh, music supervisor 
were from London because this is Cameron Macintosh production and this came from London. So there are a team of music directors or music producers or arrangers who are listening in and they'll come in sometimes and give us a specific direction or pencil in like extra gong notes here and there or things like that. So yeah, I think just like any new music production or even orchestra rehearsals, you have to be open to changes and you know, have your pencil and then be mm -hmm. flexible. It's good to have options, I'm sure. Um, Cause my gongs would crack sometimes. Because uh, it endured, you know, eight shows a week. So, sure. um, yeah. Okay. So what I always wonder, um, hearing about people that play on Broadway or honestly, even, even opera sometimes can just be like so many shows. Do you experience kind of mental and physical fatigue from doing eight shows a week um, over an extended period of time? Or, or does it feel like kind of comfort, like you have your routine and you know exactly what to expect? Um, so I never felt bored because to me, it was so exciting. I got a Broadway show because it was like a dream of mine for, I don't know, over 12, 13 years or something like that. Um, so it was exciting and, but physically, yes, I did get tired. Um, cause at the time I lived in Brooklyn and to the theater, it was easily one hour commute. And so, you know, you're starting work at 8 PM. And the show would end around, I don't know, 1043. I forgot the exact number I used to know. And then, so then you're not really coming home till midnight every night. Um, so I don't think I ever did eight shows a week once I was allowed to sub, because there's a specific period where you cannot take off because they want to make sure they sound the best during previews and stuff like that. So, and as a regular, I never wanted my subs to go uh, without playing the show for more than like a month or something because it's challenging to not to play all the time to be remembering how it goes and so I took the liberty of having the chair as a regular I had the right to play eight shows a week and it was great to have that stability um, in income and everything so I tried to use that as a base of my work and then when I got asked to play with other say, you know, Alarmal Sound or Acme or this other new music stuff that I love doing, I would just find a sub for shows and then take off. And so that musically, I never felt like I didn't have a, a freedom to do other things. And so the Broadway job became my core job. And then I'll do other work around it. And then you have all day to work right because it's eight shows a week and you there's matinee of course on two days a week but you have one day a week off uh, i think mine was monday and i have matinee on wednesday and saturday so yes if you do all of it i'm sure i would have gotten tired physically too but uh yeah it wasn't an issue for me not to say other people don't experience fatigue but uh i liked having that schedule it's neat. There's almost a subbing culture. It sounds like, like I'm, su I'm surprised they're that nice, you know, like they would say like, Oh yeah, like let's train subs. So you can go play with alarm will sound. You know, it's almost, I, I'm, I'm surprised they wouldn't just say, Hey, Chihiro, you're excellent. You're staying, you're hired to be the percussionist. We don't want to risk someone else screwing it up. It's uh, I don't know. That's, that's a, that's a, a cool thing to learn. 
Yeah, um, well, because some things happen, right? Because I did get sick once. Um, and at the time, I had a friend learning, and he was basically almost ready. But then I got so sick, and he was actually coming to watch me play as like the last thing, last preparation step. And he was gonna sub maybe a few his first show a few days later. But I got so sick, I was like, "Hey, I'm so sorry to do this. Do you think you can go on tonight?" And I'm sure it was very scary for him, but. You know, I I think he was ready, and I knew that, so I had him play that first show, and I went home. So, the producers and shows know the importance of having subs. Yeah, of course. And, um, yeah, and sometimes you know, um, you get stuck on the train or something, and then you need to be able to call someone, like, "Hey, where are you?" <laughs> and then, you know, "Are you near the theater? Can you start running?" You know. Um, <laughs> So that's why you leave your sticks in the pit. Yes. And yeah. my show, Miss Saigon, you didn't have to wear black necessarily because uh, I wasn't even in the building technically. Um, it's in the video you see, like it's like you go into the pit and then you go to the side for a while and you go up the stairs to this room. I called it percussion cave and it's under the 53rd street. So I heard subways and like high heels above me and uh, weird smells from the street and like all of that. Um, yeah, that's a that's a whole other thing that I, I wanted to ask you about is like what that that experience of you're not in the pit with everybody else and I I suppose it's space constraints you know, like there's only so much so much room. Um, are there special challenges associated with that? Like what is it like? Do you feel secure with playing with the ensemble and following the conductor? Yeah, you know, they have really good technology these days. So I, I wore in-ear monitors with a, like a mic pack that's wireless. So then I had no tail, right? Um, so that's how I listened to the rest of the group. And I was given a mixer. So uh, what's cool about Broadway shows, unlike opera, I think, is that I could control who I want to hear more or none of that way. So I could turn up singers for like that amazing ballad piece that I love that I'm not playing. I'll just be like, oh my God, that sounds so good. Uh, and I could enjoy it. Or I will turn them down so that I can hear the pianist more or whatever I needed to do, I could program it. Uh, so that's how I would communicate um, with the rest of the musicians. And then visually, I had like little camera about this big everywhere. Basically, everywhere I put music stand, I think I had four or so in my setup. So every direction I see a conductor, right? Um, and then Miss Saigon only had one song that had click tracks. So mostly I was watching the conductor. But you know how in orchestras, you don't always have to be staring at the conductor. Uh, only important part, right? Slowing down, uh, speeding up or the start of something or like an important cue. So then you get used to obviously not staring at the camera all the time, but I was mostly just listening. Um, and uh, with that, because mics everywhere in our setup too, and everything is going into one place in the house and then they mix it and then they put it out. So I don't think there was any latency. And so 
the only scary thing is that when the technology goes down, like the mic pack started acting weird, then I hear nothing. So that, oh, no. that is scary. That has happened. But usually it comes back in a few seconds. But then you feel like you are in the dark. I can't imagine. Did that happen to you like live in performance? Yeah. Oh. Well, this, this sounds pretty convenient, actually. I'm thinking even for orchestral playing, like have a little camera with the conductor right next to your music stand. Like, that doesn't sound terrible. Eliminates the this and this and keyboard playing. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. Chihiro, I wonder, is there something about playing on Broadway um, that you know as an insider that you think like most people or most musicians don't know about? Yeah. Um, so basically as i mentioned in radio city audition that's rare there's no audition so to be on broadway or play on broadway well i guess number one you probably need to move to new york city um because there new york is like the only place probably next to london where there's so much broadway going on live and thankfully it's coming back um and then Two, you have to be in a community of people. So you don't have to do Radio City to start meeting Broadway musicians, right? Uh, you just have to reach out. And sometimes it's scary, I know, but um, I wrote an article about how to cold call because that's how I got to um, playing on Broadway. So I think that really expanding your network of people and that is not just Broadway, really. If you're dying to be a teacher in a community area, right? You want to meet other teachers. And if you want to be a new music expert, then you want to be meeting composers uh, and so on. So you want to sort of decide what your passion is within music and then try to meet the person who's doing that already and just kind of pick, pick their brain you know, it, there's nothing wrong with asking them for coffee, you know, and but just be mindful of their time and don't expect that they will reply. Right. Like because you have to kind of go in with the mindset of, you know, if you have time, it would be so great to meet you. Right. And then, you know, introduce yourself in a genuine way and don't go in thinking like, please give me back this thing, because that's not a sincere way to meet anyone. So. Um, yeah, and that's probably people think there's, you know, auditions for Broadway for musicians because that's the case for dancers and actors, but there isn't. Um, yeah, and then maybe how maybe the pay works and then how you can sub out and have the freedom or subbing. There's no limit on how many shows you can sub or play at, at once. I mean, if you keep doing a good job, that's that's a good thing. Um, yeah. Do you have any questions about Broadway? I, I do. I do. I want to know how long did that take approximately? And, and how long do you think it takes to typically do that? Like, let's say, okay, I graduated from school. I moved to New York City. I do what work I can find. I want to start getting my foot in the door and meeting the, the people who I can watch play and then sub for, get lessons. Like, how long? What do you think is a typical you know, time frame that someone's looking at? You know, it's really hard because I had six years in New York already with school. And I think 
it is difficult if you just move without going to school, only because I think you're starting your sort of uh, com community building, connection building from close to zero. So I think it really depends on who you meet because some people get lucky. They just know the producer and then the producer likes you. Then maybe you're just hired by the producer, not even through the musicians or through the contractor. Uh, that's, that could happen. Uh, sometimes you get offered a show tour. So it's a good thing to consider when you're young because right, once you have a family or something and you're tied to one location, it's hard to tour. But when you're just out of school and you're probably happy to travel. So if you got offered a Broadway show tour, you know, go for it. Cause that is a great hood in the door where you can see the world or usually maybe to see the country, right? And then you get to know the people and you get to make money often you can save a lot of money that way because you don't have a apartment that you are paying rent for because they provide you housing and so some people do that tour and then they come back and then because of the connections they made maybe they will get offered a show in new york city so that's one way to do it and another way i think i did was i just existed long enough uh in new york city doing different things and you know, meeting the Broadway musicians, but also I'm doing my own thing, not waiting for Broadway mm -hmm. to happen because I don't advise anyone to just count on Broadway as your career because it's not going to be a happy waiting time. I, I don't really recommend that for anyone. Uh, just have something else too, you know. Um, I always recommend to have multiple sources of income. Well, that's why I wanted to ask because I've I've heard about you know people say I want to move to New York and I'm gonna I'm gonna find a Broadway gig and my answer is always like okay but I think you got to be prepared to do other things and stick it out and persist for like ten years before you really like massage the scene enough to like get yourself in. So yeah, thanks. It's cool to yeah cool to hear your 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 story. Of all the shows that you've played, is there one that you haven't played yet that you're just dying to play? Um, good Book question. of Mormon, Brian. Book of Mormon. Which is now off Broadway, I believe. I don't think it's it's there anymore, so oh. yeah. No. You know, um when I was going to see all the shows when I was getting started, definitely Wicked struck me as like one of the most amazing percussion book. Because uh, it's just so busy and amazing. I mean, there's like things on the ceiling. And so, yeah, I, if I have a chance, I would love to learn that. I feel like, just speaking of stuff on the ceiling and Wicked, I, I feel like, oh, yeah, I could go play drum set, like, today on that. I couldn't do percussion. <laughs> like, percussion's so much harder. It's just, it, it makes me, like, I want to have the same interview with a, a drummer, too. Like, so, because I can understand, yeah. like, I don't think there's only that many people that can even play the percussion books. You know, there's only a handful of you all out there. But, I'm, I mean, not to demean but, drum set playing, but... Well, drum but I think, also, I think it also depends on the show, too, because I think I, I watched a, a YouTube video with the drummer for Hamilton, and uh -huh. that drum set book is so involved because like every 
he's got like four or five different snare drums because every snare drum is representative of a certain character and so oh, it's wow. so i some of them maybe some of the old i'm just guessing maybe some of the older shows maybe are a little more cut and dry where it's like yeah you're just you're oh, playing okay. a drum set gig but some of, i think some of the more modern ones get really involved with the orchestration of it and stuff just just so you know chihiro's thinking like ooh four snare drums mm, <laughs> wow that's that's a heavy setup wow no <laughs> no, no i mean each show well have taken. its own thing because you know what happens with long learn running show or even just any broadway show regulars start to pick up on the tiniest thing, things that they are used to hearing. So usually they can't tell if you're not listening to the same drummer or same percussionist because yeah, they pick up on a little thing. So it's impossible to be the regular player, but you just have to do the job and you know, know that style and don't mess up that one important thing you do, which for maybe Hamilton drummer, maybe it's a trigger on the electric pad of something, but that whatever that's contributing to the show, you know, that's important to the, the role is like, what's the most important because the little triangle note here or like the little glockenspiel lick might not be that hard. Like it's kind of a sad reality. Sometimes I go out and listen to my own show, right? When a sub is playing. And then I'm so excited to hear this awesome part that I practiced so hard. And then I could barely hear it because it's not the most important thing in that song. So then you start to realize, oh, okay. It's just really for me. I have to nail things. It's just for my own satisfaction. And it is serving something, but maybe not the most important. I always have that reaction too, whenever I'm um, listening to live opera and like the parts that we sweat over so much and we're like, oh, I, like I might've chipped one note there or like the placement wasn't perfect on that triangle note. Like I'm never in the audience in an opera and a musical like critiquing, like you're just, you're caught up in the story and the singing and the acting and, and like so much else going on. Um, but of course we want everything to be at that perfectly high level and and that's why it's so good because we have that high high standard and high level of integrity yeah so Chihiro in your in your article going back to what we were talking about earlier and the Miller Machine website which I think was published in April 2020 so we were like pandemic babies at that point like we probably all felt like oh it's been four weeks since I've played live music and we had no idea what was coming um you wrote about your experiences through the pandemic at that point and how you were choosing to focus on gratitude and being grateful for um, you know, the, the benefits of that time and also diving into some creative projects that maybe you wouldn't have had time to do during like a normal, super busy gigging season. Um, and I've seen some really great content from you on Instagram and on your website. And I remember, I think this was when I first started following you, you had this metronome video um, and I shared it with like every student that I saw that week on Zoom, like, here, check this out. She's saying so many of the things we talk about. Um, but I wonder, how is the pandemic now that it's been, you know, a year and a half or so affected you and your relationship with the work that you do? Yeah, uh, well, thank you for watching my stuff. Um, you know, I'm not like a YouTube expert or anything, but I definitely just felt lost. I mean, everybody can relate to that. As someone who primarily performed live, the 
pandemic really just wiped my calendar to nothing. And I taught a little bit, but uh, I never had a full-time, full-time position where I, I taught regularly. So I kept teaching on Zoom, but then that was the only thing. And, you know, I maybe had a few weeks of just feeling completely lost. And the biggest thing was that I just didn't know who I was anymore because I was like, wait, so if I'm not performing, if I'm not being asked to play in this, this orchestra or this opera or whatever, what am I? And so, you know, there are moments and weeks that really, uh, looking back, it was not easy to kind of find my purpose again. So then what I turned to was just making videos or just creating some kind of content to share my knowledge. And, you know, a lot of people are doing that already. So even, you know, when you go to YouTube, there are so many how-to videos. And I was thinking the same thing even then. I was like, well, there are so many people already teaching what I was going to talk about. What's the point of me doing it? But then I realized, well, there is a point because it's me doing it. Because I have this void in my life where music is not a part of my life suddenly, but I am a musician and how do I feel like that again? And so that's why I thought of, you know what? Why don't I explain how to, you know, to timpani or how to use metronome? Because maybe that's useful and I will do it for me. Who cares about millions of views, but I'll do it for me. Just so I learn how to edit videos or you just shoot videos or even just get better at teaching something. So, you know, I got like audio interface and then bought like Adobe things. So I taught myself how to edit videos and thumbnails and all that like YouTube things. And at the same time, I started this newsletter series called Positive Percussionist. And I started just kind of sending out newsletters of challenges. And, you know, it was a lot of work and I had to take a break from that. Now, but I would like to start doing that again because I think it was great to have something that I could say, hey, I am a musician and I know these things. If you find this helpful, that's great. You know, so that was kind of my way of coping with the lack of work and lack of performing. Well, I think it's great. I think so much of the, the positive percussionist stuff and like just the content you're creating is is great, and I'm glad that you had the opportunity to do that. Um, one of the things in your your article that struck me, um, and what you're saying just now, is like so often I think musicians we define ourselves by our work, um, for better or for worse. Like we get so wrapped up in the work that we do, and we identify with it so personally, um, and then all of a sudden, yeah, like who who are we if we don't have gigs booked for the next three months, and who are we if we're at home with a computer and TV and isolated and you know it's it's so I think that's really important like the, the opportunity to connect with yourself and not define yourself only by the work that you're doing but also that you're a human being and you can have hobbies and meaningful things and create your own um, work opportunities so thanks for sharing your thoughts on that yeah I was gonna say it seems like a trademark of successful artist like you're not the first person on the show that either didn't have work or did all their hard work, got their career going, 
and then needed something new to fill that empty space that they used to do all that hard work in practicing and getting their career going. And so it's like, yeah, what do I do with all that energy I have? I had all this energy to working hard and practicing to get to where I am, but now I'm where I'm at. So where, what do I do with all that time? And a lot of times it seems like the answer is like, oh, start a video series or start this whole other massive teaching project. And yeah, like even when you weren't getting paid to do the work you wanted to do, you still found other work to do and like found other, another place to put that energy. And um, that seems like a, you know, just word to young people out there. That seems like a common thing, you know, that, that professionals and successful artists do. Well, and even pandemic aside, there are, especially freelancing, but I think for everybody, like there are busier times and slower times and to be okay, you know, like I lost this contract or I'm not being called as much for certain things, like to be able to fill your, your time and your creative energies in some ways, a super valuable skill. Yeah, I mean, I definitely uh, appreciate having a non-musician partner in my life because he loves to rock climb and that's like all he thinks about when he's not working. And I do too, um, but he's, he's more serious about it. But like just going on a trip with him just to be in the woods and then I try rock climbing and if I can't do it, it's fine. I'll just sit on the rock and nap, take a nap or... Uh, I love cooking and I love having all the kitchen gadgets and I have like sourdough starter that I care for and like I think it's very important to have your personal life too besides your musical life because I know it's just all you but we spend so much time in our lives and years perfecting our craft that we think that's it's easy to focus on it. And when that's gone, we feel, of course, we feel like we are not us. But that's not true. You have, you know, friends and family. And hopefully, if you don't have any non-musical hobbies, maybe just try one, like anything, you know? Because I think it's good to have some distractions besides, like, the guilt of, like, oh, I didn't practice two hours today or something like that. Like, I had to learn to be patient with myself during this pandemic. Because even now, I'm like, oh, why didn't I make another video? Why haven't I written another article? But I don't know. You I feel just feel that, yeah. Yeah, I had to just be okay with that. Yeah. You know what? I didn't feel like it. My mental wasn't there. So I give myself a break. And But I'm healthy today. And... I just try to be very thankful about the smallest things when I'm feeling a little down. Uh, that helped. That was another thing I did uh, after pandemic is that I had like a gratitude list that I publicly uh, posted on my social just so I commit to it. And uh, I recommend that if you haven't done it, it's, it's very nice. It's like I had a breakfast today and that was good. <laughs> you know, it's that, that simple. You could do that. And, you know, that, that should uh, feel you a little bit better than before. I think it's easy to relate to this from a compositional standpoint. It's like you may have all the composition chops in the world, but if you don't have anything to, like, relate to other people about, like, you need to know about the real world to, like, communicate things that are relatable 
and yeah, if all you know is technical musical things, it's it's very hard to like even think of something like specific to to say. You know, it's like an author that doesn't know anything about the world, but they have like incredible writing chops. It's like, well, it's not the writing only that makes a good book good. It's it's a book about the world, like, and it's something about the world. You know, so thus you got to like also live in the real world. You know. Yeah. Gem, um, Gemma Peacock, uh, fantastic composer, said at one point a few years ago, she said something like, uh, the only thing you need to write music is two ears and a bit of humanity. Yeah, and that just cool. kind of always struck yeah. me. It's like, yeah, she, it doesn't matter the, the compositional chops to a degree, whatever. It's like if you can relate to people on a human level, like then you're most of the way there in her mind. I thought that was great. Cool. Well, Chihiro, how, how is your performing calendar looking these days? Are things picking up, getting back to normal, and, and what's next for you? Well, so um, I'm, I started this bicoastal life a few months ago. So I mostly, mainly live in California, near LA, but then I've been traveling back to New York City or East Coast to play almost every month. Uh, in This month, I already came once and I'm actually on a trip now. I'm off to New Hampshire tomorrow. So I've been playing with ACME, American Contemporary Music Ensemble. Um, and this group is Strike Anywhere Performance Ensemble. They're a really fun group where they do sound painting, uh, which is like a, in short, it's a conducting, conducted improvisation. I don't know if you've heard of sound painting, but uh, so it's a group of actors, dancers, and musicians. So we'll be doing a residency in Dartmouth uh, in Hanover, New Hampshire. And uh, so I'll, I'll have a few things with ACME. And then anywhere in between, I have no idea. But I consider New York City totally my home. And I plan on returning often. And I would love to travel more as the world gets a little bit better because I used to travel to perform all the time. And uh, besides that, you know, I want to get back to making videos and speaking of composition, I'm really trying to be uh, a writer more because, you know, I have all this stuff and instruments and uh, technique to play instruments, but I've never really spent time making music of my own. And, you know, maybe that's common sort of dilemma to someone who studied classical music, right? Because we spend so much time playing other people's music well, and that is an art in itself. But I always had this inner sort of desire to be me. Like, why can't I just go up on stage and do something that's mine? Uh, so that's kind of my uh, inner dream or whatever you want to call it. And I want to keep doing that or start doing that. and not judge the work but just put it out there right because i think again like self-judgment is kind of an enemy to all musicians we think we always are bad but who to tell right it's not we're always judging ourselves but why not just put it out so that's kind of my goal and really to realize that no one has to give me permission to create because uh with pandemic i always had to I felt like, oh, no one's gonna call me. Right, no one is gonna call me to write me a piece, like write a piece. I mean, I'm not like some famous composer, but I could just do that. 
I could always create more videos. No one's gonna stop me, but me. So that's kind of where I'm at mentally. And whatever comes my way in terms of outside work that someone might want to call me for, I'll welcome everything and then decide what's possible. You just need a catchy last name like Nozny. <laughs> no. I don't know why I was expecting a serious comment. Your face it hasn't worked for me, so. What? It's like in the composition game, you just need a cool last name. Van Halen. Wizard of Nas. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, on a serious note, Chihiro, we, we look forward to hearing what you're up to in the future and hope to hope to hear some of your music. And enjoy New Hampshire. Gosh, Hanover must be super, super beautiful. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, that'll be great. But Chihiro, I did want to ask you, I know that you came from Japan to study in the U.S. at Interlochen and then for your degrees at Juilliard, um, and you came when you were 16. I wonder, in your view, how does percussion education in the U.S. differ from percussion education in Japan? Are there different focuses or values that, that you see? So, um, so I didn't go to Japanese music schools, so I can't tell the the nitty-gritty of everyday kind of philosophical things, but I think the biggest difference is that in Japan, most conservatories or music college, they separate marimba measure versus percussion measures. And maybe now there's more combined measures. I don't know, I haven't checked lately, but when I was in the age of sort of looking into college, there it was definitely separate. So, you know, that's probably why there are so many marimba players from Japan or Asia like that, because the concentration on marimba is a normal idea. In the States, I guess there are only selected conservatories who offer that. I mean, now I'm seeing the trend of uh, every you know school having a marimba specialist teacher, and that's, I think, a great trend. Um, so in the US, though, you have to combine everything. Like if you want to apply to a percussion major, then you have to excuse me, you have to know timpani, snare, drum, and mallets, right? And that's the standard. So when I was auditioning for Interlock and Summer Camp, I suddenly have to teach or get a teacher to teach me snare drum and timpani so I could just send something. So um, that's kind of the difference, I think. And um, this is just more personal experience of mine, but Interlochen and just being in America felt so right for me at the time because it was the first time I felt like teachers really told me, oh my God, you're so talented. You're going to be great. You should, you should do this. You know, you should go to the academy. I think you'd be perfect for you. Like that encouragement that I got here uh, was something that I have never experienced because in Japan, um, I was already feeling behind. Uh, when I was 13 or 14, I already felt like I'm never gonna get into a decent music school because I didn't know music theory, I didn't know solfege, I didn't know music, uh, anything. Like uh, there's all these subcategories of audition requirements to get into a freshman program in Japan. Like even the piano, secondary piano is expected um, and good grades, of course. So that the academic pressure in Japan, I think that's, that is true. People always kind of talk about that. So if a 13 year old already felt like the, her dream was crushed, right? Then 
I don't know how to break out of that. And I really needed that little boost of encouragement from American schools. And Inolokan provided exactly that for me. So not sure if it's the case for everybody, but for me, that really made me feel like, oh, wow, maybe if I work hard, I could be a professional musician. And then really the Inolokan sort of sparked that dream of, of mine to pursue that and to, to look back and you know, imagine, wow, if I had stayed in Japan, I would have never auditioned to Juilliard because it's too far. You know, I never thought that Juilliard audition just um, uh, had live audition. Like I play percussion, right? And then I took English proficiency test called TOEFL. And then that was all I needed. I didn't have to be able to play the piano. I didn't have to know solfege. I didn't have to know the history. Uh, and so I had no idea about that. And that, that kind of differences I could only experience just by coming to the States. And so to me, that was a life-changing moment. Yeah, thanks for sharing your experiences on that. Um, and I'm sure some of it has to do with cultural, just cultural differences, um, but also, you know, so many teachers are have different styles and some teachers are incredibly demanding and also encouraging at the same time. Um, and it, it sounds like probably that's the kind of rigor you went through, encouragement plus high standards and hard work. Um, and other teachers are, you know, more strict and maybe like tough love and for lack of a better term, like meaner or more straightforward. And like, there's a whole whole divide, but I'm glad that you found um, at Interlock and, and then at Juilliard, uh, what, what you found to be a, a supportive, encouraging environment. Well, also I'm sure you were working your butt off like crazy through those years. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Interlock and I practiced the most because I didn't know how to be bad if you know what I mean, like, because uh, I was in boarding school and I don't know, some kids might sneak out and do something. I didn't really know how to do that. So <laughs> I was just studying and practicing and, you know, making friends and just was a good student because I didn't know how to exist otherwise. Um, what else are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I just go to bed now, right? Yeah. I yeah. have a band practice. I got to set up at 6 a.m., you know? like right. <laughs> That's the feeling I always have at Interlock in. Like, what else are you going to do other than work really hard and do cool things? And, you know, like there's, I don't, I, maybe as a student, there's more trouble to get into, but. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I was out of that trouble. Um, but uh, I think also having uh, like-minded friends that are same age, that really helps you if, your best friends practicing six hours, you feel a little, you know, off. It's like, oh, maybe I should practice too. And I think that's the beauty of going to school like Inolokin is that everybody is working hard for something most of the time, you know, and, and there's the whole fun thing too. You could have fun, but yeah, the environment you put yourself into is really important, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chihiro, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful to hear about you and your life and your work. Um, I hope, hope our paths cross again soon, and we wish you all the best. Thanks for joining us for episode 300. Yeah, thank, thank you so you, much. Chihiro.